Like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. Now, Paul, on his second missionary trip, of four, fourth one of, on his way to Rome, on his second missionary trip, he goes from, on his first roughly 1,400 miles to his second one roughly 2,800 miles, stops in Corinth. He had just left Athens where he had a very tepid response and gave a very tepid uh, offering as well. As a matter of fact, it's one place we never read of a church being planted. Uh, and Paul left the area of uh, the area of Athens, and he had tried to do basically things that people try to emulate today, but Paul swore he would never do it again. Uh, he he uh, imitated a lot of the poets. He kind of played a lot of that thing. But the two things you don't hear in his message that is recorded is Jesus Christ and in him crucified. And Paul would tell the Corinthians, when I came, I did not come with a superior, superiority of wisdom or eloquence of speech, but I desired, but he said, I, pro- I resolved to know nothing or proclaim nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He goes, I was going to be simple. I was going to be direct. It was going to be simple and plain. And that's what you guys got. And Paul would spend the second most amount of time anywhere that we have recorded uh, as in ministry there as he plants a church. He spends over a year and a half there. The only place longer than that is Ephesus. So he plants a church on his second trip. And as he does, he plants this church. He's there for about a year and a half. And then he heads off. Now, if we're going to read the text, that's uh, basically in Acts 18 by Acts uh, well, 17, 18, and 19 is where we're looking at his trip. And ultimately, when he leaves, there's another guy who, I want to warn you, is a relatively very fresh convert. He was a super eloquent guy. He was a very gifted speaker, but he was not converted. It tells us that he was eloquent, he was gifted, uh, he was brilliant, and he was well-knowledgeable in Scripture, but he only knew the baptism of John, and his name is Apollos. Now, what's the baptism of John? Well, according to Paul, what he writes is that the baptism of John is a baptism of repentance. So in other words, he could convince you, according to Scripture, you were doing all kinds of wrong things, but the conclusion he could lead you to at the end is, so stop doing them. And that's as far as he could take you. But he runs into a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who meet him in Ephesus, who finish the job. They proclaim to him the truth of Jesus Christ. Now understand, he may be super gifted in teaching the Old Testament scriptures, but he's not converted. Without Jesus Christ, how could you possibly be saved? But now he is. And he leaves, immediately leaves Ephesus and wants to head to Corinth. So he heads over. What we read, though, is that there were 12 guys who were left that, that were, in essence, disciples of Apollos. But they had not been taught about Jesus because Apollos didn't know about Jesus. And, and when Apollos gets corrected and comes to Christ, he doesn't teach them. Very interesting thing. But instead, this guy heads over to Corinth. And he tends to be, as much as we'd like to paint him as this really great thing, he tends to be a real cause of the problem here. Now, I can't tell you he's a direct cause of it, but indirectly he is. Because he's everything Paul isn't. I remind you, when Paul showed up, he resolved not to do it fancy. He resolved not to be eloquent. He resolved not to be philosophical and not to sound brilliant, but to be simple and plain. He says that the power of God, that you would trust in the power of God and not in the brilliance of man. That you would lean on the power of God's word and not the brilliance of a man's philosophy. In the simplest sense, he goes, I give it to you simple and plain, so you know it's God who does the work, it's his word that is the truth. And unfortunately, when Apollos comes in after him, he's everything Paul wasn't. 
by Second Corinthians, God willing, next week, what we'll read is there's a camp that raises up that says Paul is unimpressive to look at, and his voice is irritating. <laughs> he's like, and, and understand, it says his, you know, it says his speech amounts to nothing. His speech is contemptible. Is the term they use. In other words, when he talks, it drives me crazy. But his letters are weighty. In other words, they're like, read the book, don't see him live. And so get the idea in this. That how do people come up with that idea? Well, we're going to read why in here. Now, understand, here's the problem. Paul will actually tell us when we read the, the pastoral letters not to be hasty on the laying on of hands. You don't just, and he goes, and I wonder if Paul was thinking about Paulus. Because somewhere in this, what happens is, is that this Corinthian church, and I remind you, Corinth was known for its debauchery. Over a thousand temple prostitutes on employ at any given moment. It was the Amsterdam or Vegas of the day. Homer would actually use the term Corinthian girl. And when he says that, what he is actually calling her, it's a prostitute. It's synonymous as far as he's concerned. And he would say, not many men are man enough for Corinth. It was the place where you went that whatever happens at Corinth stays in Corinth. When Paul is writing this, he is not. Good question, so let me get there. So he plants this church. It is the only place, by the way. And I remind you, he had gone through Macedonia before that, which is Philippi, and that's Thessalonica and Berea. And he had been, in essence, chased out of every place. Granted, paraded out of Philippi, but after being beaten and thrown in prison. Then in Thessalonica, and he fled from there. Berea, and he flees from there because the Thessalonians actually track him down and chase him out. So he leaves the whole area of Macedonia and makes his way down into Athens. But he's like, he was pretty messed up. He was pretty beaten up on his way down there. And the reason I say that is, is when he showed up in Corinth, of all the places, it's the one place we read Jesus makes a house call with him. And we read that Jesus shows up there and he says, don't be afraid, Paul. And I find that fascinating. He had gotten beat up and thrown in prison in Philippi and Jesus doesn't show up and say, don't be afraid. They had, they had planned to stone and abuse or kill and abuse Paul, like killing isn't abusing him, in Thessalonica, and he fled from there. In Berea, they chased him there, and he fled. Jesus doesn't show up in any of those places and go, don't be afraid. But, pardon me, ladies, but as a guy, does this make any sense? And maybe it does for you too as well. But he's in the place where sin is not just available, it's not just convenient, it is in your face at every given moment. And he's without his boys for the moment because they're still up in Macedonia cleaning up the messes there. And Jesus is like, don't be afraid here, guys. Don't be afraid. I've got people in the right places. Ultimately, the Jewish populace of Corinth has a real problem with them. They raise them up. They try to basically charge him with crimes against Rome in front of the governor whose name is Gallio. And Gallio, by the way, is a guy who's known for being ruthless and just doesn't like to listen to anything and he's quick to punish. So they think they've got him in the hole of this. And ultimately, uh, it is important to note that uh, I was like, wait a minute, excuse me, this is a religious matter. This is a loose paraphrase, but don't just believe me. He's like, this is a religious matter. What in the world do I need to do with this? He goes, you know, why don't you judge this in your own courts? Stop bothering me. And it says, and the, uh, the leaders the secular government take the leader of the synagogue, his name is Sosthenes, and they beat him. And we read Galileo takes no notice of him. Now the real question is, right before that, Paul had actually tried to speak in the synagogue, 
and they didn't have, want to have any of it. So Paul actually said, well, fine, then I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left and he literally went next door. And it said that the ruler of the synagogue actually got saved. But his name was Crispus. Now this other guy, and it appears to be the next guy they hire for the job, his name is Sosthenes. Well, who is he? <coughs> He's the guy that's actually trying to have Paul nailed. And it's interesting because Sosthenes gets beat up as, because he was the troublemaker. He was the one trying to get Paul put in jail and all of this. And I remind you, Jesus said, don't be afraid. I've got people in high places. And you kind of go, oh, you would never have thought it was Galilee in a moment like that. Are you all with me on that? So imagine that Paul's biggest opponent there was a guy named Sosthenes. Y'all with me so far? Paul is now left there. On his way from there, he's going to make his way back to Jerusalem on a second missionary trip. And when he makes his way back to Jerusalem on a second missionary trip, he's going to go back on a third. He stops for a very quick moment, and he's like, I don't have, in Ephesus, and he goes, I don't really have a lot of time in Ephesus right now, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to spend a lot of time with you guys. Trust me on this. On his third trip, he comes back. And he spends three years in Ephesus, the longest time he'll spend anywhere in his ministry. Y'all with me so far? Yeah. While he's there, he gets a letter. And he gets a letter from three guys, Stephanus, Ritonatus, and Achaicus. And these three guys send a letter to him, and he goes, Paul, the church is a mess. It is now five years since Paul started planning that church. And Paul looks at a church that he had spent the most time at, except for where he's at at the moment. And at that point, it had been. And he looks and he says, there are some real problems in this church. So Paul, in response to those three guys showing up, writes 1 Corinthians. And he writes 1 Corinthians, gives it to those three guys, and sends them back with the letter. Does that make sense? The letter of 1 Corinthians is a very tidy book. The first six chapters, Paul is in essence playing the role of a physician for the church. In other words, what he is doing is he's going, here are the symptoms you told me about, and here is my diagnosis. Does that make sense? Those are the first six chapters. Starting in chapter 7, he says, now concerning the things you wrote to me. So in other words, chapter 7 to 16, the last part of it, is in essence Pastor Paul questions for Pastor Paul they're like hey if the Lord's coming back so quickly well what about getting married is it okay to get married what about meat sacrificed idols what about giving how exactly are we about to give well what about the fact that this is what things are kind of looking like at the communion table what about spiritual gifts and is the one church where he says you are lacking no spiritual gift by the way they are exercising. In other words, the Corinthian church is a very charismatic church, as we would define charismatic churches, or Pentecostal church, as we would call it. And there's an irony, and we'll talk about that. And so the way that it runs, and this is what you'll hopefully you'll come to when we get to that second half, marrying me, giving idols, men and women at the table, spiritual gifts, love, church practices, resurrection, giving, and goodbye. That is chapter 7 through 16. And we'll try to get you through that in a way so that you remember that and you'll realize that's every major topic from chapter 7 to the end of the book. Now, with that in mind, let's go through it. Y'all ready? And here we go. Again, 1 through 6, the problem and the solutions. 7 through 16, questions for Pastor Paul. 
Here is his conclusion, his diagnosis to their problems. Chapter 3, verse 3, For you are still carnal. Now, notice, by the way, and if you're the kind that underlines our circles, underline our circle the word still. Here is the problem. When you first gave your life to Christ, you were, if you were anything like me, I gave my life to Christ at 19. I was a 19-year-old sinner. But I was an infant in Christ. So I was really good at being carnal. The word is fleshly, sark. The problem isn't that. The problem is you haven't grown out of it. I'm assuming every one of you had a nappy time. When you were really, really small, you were put in nappies. And you couldn't eat solid food. But I'm under the impression that none of you are at that stage anymore. You've grown out of it. You can walk. You can feed yourself. We'll, we'll keep that confession to yourself there. Um, but it's like, you get the point. It's like, there are certain things you expect to come with maturity. You expect, I mean, just basic growth things. You expect them to be able to walk. You expect them to be able to talk. You expect them to be able to feed themselves. And ultimately, you hope that they'll move out and get a job and then support you. But uh, in all of that, Paul's looking at a church five years on. Understand, it's a five-year-old church. And he goes, yeah, you guys still carnal. By this point, you should be out of your spiritual nappies, and you are not. Here's the interesting thing. He never questions their salvation. There's only one church that Paul ever actually has says he has doubts about, and that's the Galatian church. And we'll talk about that when we get there. It's the only church, by the way, he doesn't call the recipients saints, by the way. Of every other letter that he writes locationally, Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, even Thessalonica, he will call them to the saints. But he doesn't say it there in Galatia. I find that interesting. Now, here are symptoms. He says there are three basic symptoms of a carnal church. Here's the irony. It is the most spiritually charismatic church of all of the ones that are written to, and yet it's the most carnal let me say that again. It is the most spiritually charismatic church that we have identified here, and yet it is the most carnal. Don't you find that ironic? That the church that's the most worldly, that's the most fleshly, can also be the one that demonstrates the most spiritual gifts. I'm not inferring that a church that demonstrates spiritual gifts is carnal. I'm just also, but I'm also saying, I, what I am saying, is that just because it has and demonstrates a bunch of spiritual gifts does not mean it's not carnal. Because the Corinthian church was clearly both. And here are our three symptoms. Chapters 1 through 4. Let's read through these verses together. It says, Now I say that that each one of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the age? Has not God made, the fo- made foolish the wisdom of this world? For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble or good. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base, and the base things of the world and the things which are 
and that no flesh shall should glory in his presence. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech. This is chapter 2, verse 1. Did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. For my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now we have to speak not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of you, of who is from God, that we might know the things that have been fully given to us by These things we also speak not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal, as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Here's our first major point. Is that, oh, here, well, we've got a couple more verses. Go ahead. You then have called, and here's the colors, but ministers during their belief that the Lord gave them children. So then there, so then either he who plants is anything, nor he waters, but God who gives the increase. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. So let a man... Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The first major problem he noticed is divisions. He noticed that there was a division among the people. And they were doing it under two pretenses. One was who they knew. In essence, with the who they knew, it was I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. And we've met people that are like that. They're like, oh, well, you know, I know this pastor and I know that pastor and, you know, that kind of stuff. Or, you know, I go to this church or you go to that church. You know, that kind of thing. But the other thing was not just who they knew, but it was what they thought they knew. Uh, in, in other words, they were all about wisdom. And notice how many times Paul's like, I didn't use wisdom man's wisdom, but rather I wanted God's word to actually be the thing planted in you. So, pardon me, I'm going to go at the throat of this, and I don't mean to offend, but I mean to challenge. But I think Paul would have really gone after some of what is called the apologetics movement. In the sense of where it's like you're being taught how to argue better, and you're taught logic classes and argument classes, and he goes, and you can't go out and you can't share Jesus until you really have an airtight argument. And he's like, you realize how many people don't share the Lord because they just feel like they can't answer everyone's questions. Mm -hmm. And he's like, 
that's because your faith really isn't in the power of God anymore. It's in the philosophy and in the wisdom of men. And he goes, you need, to go, you need to know. So this is how he goes after the throat of it. He goes, first of all, let me show you. I demonstrated simplicity for the power of God over this man's wisdom thing. And by the way, on the, second, on the first part of it about dividing over people, he's like, we're nobodies. We are just workmen. It is not about us. It's about Jesus. He's bringing them back to the point. Does that make sense? But when you see a church where people are divided over, well, I'm smarter than you are, I can argue this better, or, well, you don't understand, I originally knew Pastor Chuck, or, well, you don't understand, I was baptized by this person, or, well, you know, I was anointed by this, and I got this blessing in this location. He's like, that just looks carnal to me. Because, obviously, the problem is your focus is all on you, not on Jesus. And he goes, and though you might be saying, well, your focus appears to be on that guy, but that's to make you look cool. Understand, all of that was to validate you in front of the rest of the people in the room. Do you get that? And he goes, this is the problem. This is what in the flesh looks like, is you spend all your time trying to validate you in front of other people, who are, by the way, also validated for the same reason you are in honesty, which is through Jesus Christ. Please hear me. If you can't realize how important you are at the cross of Christ, Nothing else is going to make you feel important in comparison. God, the only person who knows everything about you, chose to die for you just because he'd rather die than live without you. And he's the only one who knows everything about you, and he still wanted you? How exactly do you think knowing someone else or doing something else or being a, a master, an expert, or having a doctrine or whatever, and whatever it is, is going to make you more important than that? But when that is where you get your validation, you can do the rest of the things to serve somebody else versus to make yourself awesome. Does that kind of make sense? And there's the danger. So the first of our three symptoms in this three-ring circus is people are divided. He says, you're still carnal. He goes, when there are arguments and strife and contentions, see what contentions are? Contentions like being... Contention is the opposite of being content, oddly enough. It's competing with each other. Everybody's competing. So imagine you're in a room and the Holy Spirit's coming upon somebody and they begin to laugh because they're so overwhelmed. Could a person be moved by the Holy Spirit to laugh? They, they recognize their forgiveness and they're so overwhelmed with the joy that they begin to laugh. Is it possible? Sure. Could a person be so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit by the recognition of their forgiveness that they begin to cry? I'm a laugher. Suzanne's a crier. Probably doesn't surprise me. We've had things like great gifts handed to us and so forth. I begin to laugh. She begins to cry. That's kind of the way it is. So imagine we're in a room and we're waiting on the Holy Spirit. A dangerous term, by the way. As we're waiting on the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit really affects Eddie. And he begins to cry. He's so overwhelmed by the grace and the love of God, he begins to cry. But here's the problem. It isn't Eddie. Eddie's having a genuine experience with the Lord right now. But at that particular moment, Noreen looks over, because she's hungry for a move of God. And she sees Eddie crying. And she goes, there's the move of God. So what Noreen does, is she decides she's going to have to cry too. But, because it's a competitive environment, because it's in the flesh, because the focus is on her. She can't just cry. She has to wail. <laughs> She's going to outcry Eddie. Right? 
at which point now there's a little bit of a movement happening, and then Jaden jumps in. Jaden, at this point, he looks and goes, oh, the movement of God is crying. So you know what happens? So he, what he does is he throws himself to the knees and he beats his breast and he's like, ah! And God's looking, he's like, this is like comedy hour if it wasn't so sad. The sad part is one person was looking up and everyone else was looking around. That's a contentious room. Does that make sense? Mm. Or one person's so overwhelmed they begin to chuckle. Now, I'm not again to obstruct other people, but they're just like, thank you, you're so awesome. And Dan looks and he goes, oh, it's about laughing. And so Dan now starts to do the belly laugh, ho, 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 ho. And he's like, Father Christmas. And at that point, Lois is like, I got to outdo that. And so he's like, ah, ha, 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 ha. right? And as she starts to do that, Shamar at this point has to wet himself to outdo them. And of course, what happens by this point is everyone's falling over and rolling over and laughing and so forth. But in the end of it all, me have started as a move of God. But it isn't ending that way. And, and again, I'm not trying to rule out the term. I'm just trying to be careful when we go, like, we're going to wait for a move of God. And what we're saying by that is we're waiting for some experience from God. The Holy Spirit's primary objective is to be the catalyst of intimacy between you and Jesus. And if you don't wind up at the feet of Jesus, something is amiss somewhere. So when he looks at it, he goes, division? How in the world is that supposed to be church? Our second thing, let's read our verses. Chapter 5. It is actually reported, and I want you to read these carefully because I'm going to ask you a, a question and I need you to be careful to answer. It is actually reported, as if Paul's blown away, that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality, excuse me, it just chokes me up, as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. That's mom or stepmom. You got that. That's simple math. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? Deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But now I have written to you not to keep company from anyone Isn't that a lovely verse? Boy, talk about getting harsh. Okay, now let me ask you. You ready? Be careful how you answer this. What is the church, what is the second problem the church is experiencing? What's that? You know, that's the easiest place to go. But that's one guy who's doing that. What's the rest of the church doing? Puffed. What does it mean to be puffed up? Okay, wait a minute. How, you're proud of a guy sleeping with his mom? Do you realize that's what he's saying? The second problem is sexual tolerance. Sexual sin tolerance, if that makes sense. Or tolerance to sexual sin. Because the problem isn't, that, I mean, the problem is clearly this guy has a problem. He goes, but that's this guy's issue. But the rest of the church's problem is that they're, in, they're not only endorsing it, they're proud of the fact that it's like, guess what? We're more sexually adventurous in church than unbelievers are out there. Isn't that what they're saying? Check out our freedoms. Because you know what this is? It's all about, it's, it's carnality. If this is, is you're still carnal. Let's take a look at our third problem. 
And you realize at that point we're almost halfway through the book. Dare any one of you, having a matter against a one or another... Oh, by the way, how does he say, what's his solution, by the way, to the, to the guy who's doing this? Yeah, kick him out of the church. That's what it means to hand him out. Now, you know what? Who likes to do that? Who likes to see that happen? You know why? Now, please hear me on this. One of the most cruel things we can do is give someone a false sense of security. I've watched, I've literally watched people die from a false sense of security. The guy that was high on acid when I was in school was convinced that their ground was still stable, but it was he was walking towards the steps, and everyone joked and thought it was funny. I told him, yeah, yeah, man, it's just, it's just the floor. He took a step, and he died right there on the steps on his way down. Because nobody had the heart to tell him, dude, where you're stepping next is to your peril. Now, please hear me in this. It was not, it was not for him to be damned. But what does it say? That his soul would be spared. You know what's going to be interesting? When we get to 2 Corinthians, this guy will repent and come back. How you can you be sure that putting someone out of the church will bring them back? You can't be sure. But you can be sure that you're doing the right thing. If the person is unrepentant, and this has become his life, but here's the problem. This stands in the face of, of the vast majority of what we call Christianity today. Because the church isn't really interested in being holy because that sounds like we're being pompous and pious and proud. But when we want, if we want to become more like Jesus and that really is our goal, like we sang, that becomes a really radically different thing. Okay, if I wanted to be a professional athlete, and there were times in my life where that was a serious pursuit, I didn't want to hang out with the vacational, uh, you know, the person that's sort of like a c- occasional person in a particular place. I wanted people that were Olympic. I always say a runner runs faster in a faster race. I want people that are so full on, I'm intimidated by it. Because I want to do it well. I don't want to do it mediocre. Now, with that in mind, the irony is going to be our next section. But what he says is, hand him over that his body may be burned, but his soul would be spared. You can't live both lifestyles all, and he goes, and think both are going to be okay with it. He goes, hey, and by the way, God does that same thing. He's like, remember how Israel had this problem with idols? So God sent them to Babylon. It was like Idolville. Now, it was on a wood. Have, have, you want idols? Don't play with me. Go have all your idols. But you know, when Israel comes back, you never again see an idol. You, see, you never see an idol in the New Testament. They were cured of it. How do you know they will come back? We don't. But we sure can pray. The problem is it becomes an epidemic around others. That person staying in there was encouraging other people to do so. Here's the problem. If I were to do this, and we have to do this occasionally, if I were to do this, which one of you would go, way to go, Pastor Tony. People hate you for it. I mean, they, they hate you for it. And even in cases where people are genuinely dragging people into sin, you're still the bad guy. Trust me, and Daniel can tell you, but he doesn't have to. We've gone through that together. All right, third one. Dare any one of you having a matter against one another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? 
do not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgment concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise one among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that go to the law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, uh, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The third thing was personal intolerance. And then I would say suing. That's what they're doing. They're suing each other. Here's the ironic. God does teach us to be tolerant. Against, He teaches us to be tolerant to each other's personality, but intolerant to sin. And the church has flipped it. We're tolerant to all the sin, but we're intolerant to each other's personality. Now, listen to what Paul says. It's the one time where he says, this is an utter failure. Do you realize what that says? You can't fail more than this in, in regards to your witness. Interesting, it wasn't the sexual sin that he said was the utter failure, though it's a failure. Their competitions and contentions and their divisions, he doesn't call another failure, though it's a failure. But you take some other brother or sister and you drag them to the court of an unbeliever and they have to decide this? Because that's another failure. He says, let me give you some options. By the way, he doesn't just say, don't do that. Here are your options. One, why don't you just let yourself be cheated? Could you imagine? He ripped me off. Told him to be cheated. Uh, I don't like that option. Well, let me give you another one. Find a man that you trust is wise, that is in the church, and let him settle the matter. Do you know why people don't want to do that? Because they don't have the authority, the legal authority, to bring any form of recompense if you don't follow through. You go to the court, you could be arrested, you could be fined, your wages could be garnished. You have some kind of backing because, after all, that's consequence. But please hear me in this. A Christian should be driven by conscience, not consequence. Before we knew the Lord, consequences would stop us. And if the consequence wasn't bad enough, it didn't stop us. But when we gave our life to Christ, conscience is supposed to stop us. You know, this is the problem with you going to an unbeliever. 
Because you know what happens if, you know, we've had that. We've had times where we've had to sit and, and adjudicate situations. We've sought the Lord in prayer. We've, we've heard the situation. And we've gone, well, what's clear is here's the situation. But the worst thing you can tell them is, you know, if you're not going to follow through with this, you're gonna, you shouldn't be coming to church here until you get this worked out. But you know what they're going to do. And traditionally, one of two things happens. By, by God's grace, almost all of the cases, they did it right and they worked it out. But in one situation, the guy was just had no interest. You know, he just did. He left and he went to the church down the street. That's the problem is, there's always another church you can join and start all over again. But what Paul is saying is, this is the problem with a carnal church. Because it's all about you, you know what comes with being all about you? Entitlement. And entitlement makes it sound like, if it's unfair to you, then darn it, you're going to get your comeuppance. Where's balance of being cheated or whatever, but also like sort of challenging a brother or sister on ungodly behavior? I guess someone's ripping you off. Go, go back or to not. the point where it says that a person that lives a lifestyle of covetousness or greed, that was part of it, don't even eat with them and don't even fellowship with them. Okay, who wants to do that? Mm. But that is, the challenge is, if a person's going to live a lifestyle like that, then you need to actually treat them that way. They treat them like an unbeliever. Remember what Jesus said when a brother sins against you? Matthew 18, you pull them aside and you tell them the matter between the two of you alone. Mm-hmm. If they won't hear you in the matter, you bring up another witness. Mm-hmm. And if he still won't hear you, let him bring it before the church. And he says, if, that, if he still won't repent under the circumstances, or she, he says, let him be treated as a tax collector or an unbeliever. Now, here's the problem. We can all, we can understand that idealistically, but which one of you wants to have to be in my shoes or in Daniel's shoes at a moment like that where we have to declare something like that? You know, when, you know what? Even the person, and this is normally the case, it's like a domestic abuse situation. You jump in to rescue one and the other person attacks you. It's, you know, they're like, I've been wrong. You know, I know. So that you deal with the situation like, okay, well, you know what? You're, you, you need to reconcile this or you shouldn't be welcome here. And then they're like, who do you think you are to judge? And you're like, the scripture just told me that was what we're supposed to do. You brought in, you quoted that scripture when you came in the room and now I'm doing it and you have a problem. It's amazing how people do that. Isn't that a crazy yeah. text? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you're like, you're like, uh, and, and imagine this is the reality Paul's working from. He's like, we're going to stand, and there are angels who have clearly not submitted to God. So he's talking about the ones that are right, fallen angels, right? Yeah, and we have no. How in the world are we going to judge an angel was faithful to God? Yeah. Like yeah. Imagine yeah. Gabriel yeah. going, Gabriel, I don't know if you actually got some Mary inside. <laughs> you know, should have showed up a little earlier. I would have liked Christmas on the 24th, you know. Um, but yeah, but it's like the idea of it is, is understand what they did is they chose to make it. And think about what the devil did. Listen, he says, you know, I will be. Now he had serious eye trouble. I will be like the one who sits on the north. I will be the one admired among the angels. I will be the one. He had serious eye trouble. It was all about him. What the devil did is he made it all about him. And those who followed did the same. Mm. And you realize that's what this church looks like. Mm. 
And he goes, don't you realize, this is what a carnal church looks like. He goes, but don't you realize you're going to stand there and go, I sub- you, know, you submitted to the Lord. Now that doesn't mean you have to sit in the judgment seat per se, but you may be brought up as evidence. And he goes, look at those people obeyed me. You didn't. So don't tell me people can't obey. So that's kind of the concept behind that. Now, you all with me on that? Yeah. I'll go through the next part quickly, and I won't, but I'm going to challenge you. They're all here to read, but I want to be sensitive to time on this too, okay? But so, here's, so here are our three main points on this first half. There is the issue of divisions. There was the issue of sexual tolerance. Well, sexual sin tolerance. And the issue of personal intolerance through suing. By the way, I had a group of 7th, 8th graders. That makes them about 12, 13 years old. But I taught, you know, one year in school. And we went to 1 Corinthians like this. And I got a call from an angry parent. And the parent was like, you know, my daughter just rebuked me. And I'm like, what? And she says, Mom, you cannot sue that person. That person's a Christian. And she said, who told you that? And by God's grace, she did not say Mr. Holiday. She said, the Bible, Mom. Let me show you. And she read the text. And she goes, and she goes how dare you tell my daughter? To, I'm like, hold on. Do you think I told your daughter? What makes you think she told me your situation? Oh, okay. That's true. Right? You know, and I'm like, wait a minute. Regardless of that situation, though what you're thinking is false, you're totally in the wrong direction. Is it in the Bible? If it's in the Bible and you're calling yourself a Christian in this, my, your problem is not me, ma'am. Your problem is not your daughter. Your problem is the text. Anyways, that was really fun. Yeah, I, yeah, you can imagine. And I'm not teaching there anymore. Yeah. Oh, bam. Bam. Okay. Now, here's the point on it. So, so, and by the way, you have to imagine some people, please hear me in this. This is what's going to happen. There are people who have no interest in growing. There are other people who really do. And when you read this, and if your heart's like, I want to become more like Jesus, you cry inside. And there were others like, who do you think you are? And that's going to become real prevalent in Second Corinthians, who, in my opinion, the most emotional letter Paul writes. I've, you'll never see Paul more hurt than you will Second Corinthians. Because there are people like, shut up, Mr. Unimpressive, goofy-looking, irritating speech guy. Okay. Now, Paul, we have some questions. So, ready? Now, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. So, hold up your hand like this. Okay? You ready? Each one of these is a chapter. Chapter 1. Marrying. Say marrying. Marrying. Paul, is it okay to get married? And this is the chapter where you'll say things like, hey, well, you know, if a guy feels like he's behaving inappropriately to a virgin... And, of course, the idea of it is somebody's engaged to or whatever. is like, well, then let him put up. Let him, let him marry the girl. It's not a sin to marry a girl. And he goes, but on the other hand, I do want to warn you that when you do get married, you're going to have a divided heart. Because you obviously have to think about them, and you have to think about the things of heaven, and you have to, you have to put that into account. And it's like, you know, we talk about that. It's like when you're single, and God goes, tomorrow I would like to see you in Tibet. 
or in Afghanistan or whatever. And I'm just the kind of guy that's like bungee jumping. I'm like, yeah, mm. let's go. Now it's like, mm, I, don't, I can't orphan my kids. But if God says that I still need to go, but the only difference is I have to look at my wife freak out before I leave. You know? And I remember when there was a time when Afghanistan first opened and Suzanne was on her knees because they were begging us to come. And, then, and I'm like, Lord, this is so exciting and you know how you built me. And then the Lord's like, but you know you. You would do this because it's cool. Mm-hmm. And he's like, but there are other guys that are raising up that have your same spirit. Send them. So we delivered 200 Bibles to the Afghanis. And the great part is I didn't have anything to do with it other than sending them. Mm-hmm. Same thing with rebuilding Thailand, the, the, the village in Thailand. I love those, those stories because I feel like, okay, I, I don't like to tell you stories where I don't do it right. Here's a couple. But the whole point of it is, is that he goes, look it. You want to get married, that's awesome. But I just want to warn you, from that point on, you'll be like, all right, Lord, you, but I want to also make sure this is handled. He goes, but we call it single-minded. So that's marriage. That's the first one. So what's chapter 7? Okay. What about meat sacrificed to idols? He's like, you know what? When we know that it's not really idol, what the Romans would do is they would take the meat, they would kill the animal in front of their idol, and then they'd sell the meat in the market. Can I eat that meat? Can I not eat that meat? It's a great chapter for a handful of things. He's like, and I, it's one of the most powerful verses to me as a carnivore because he's like, if I trip up somebody with this, I'm never going to eat meat again. You know? And I'm like, dang, Paul, that means that's serious. Do you know, like, some chicken is halal? Yeah, and, and you know, that's interesting because they also have kosher, mm. which means it has to be done in a particular way that's approved by. Mm. I can't say that that's sacrificed the same way that I wouldn't say a kosher thing was sacrificed to Yahweh. But, uh, yeah, well, I mean, in the end of all, all it means is that it was done in a process that's approvable by them. You know, you certainly won't find, I mean, ask for a halal pork and see what you get, because they just don't eat it. But then you won't find kosher pork either. Yeah, I miss kosher bacon. Yeah, that's called veggie bacon. That's not bacon at all. Um, but you know, it's, it's but I mean, but back then they would literally sacrifice to the to the gods. And by the way, people, it happens in India to this day. And so they were trying to identify Christians. And so what they would do is they would they they would say, "Oh, this was sacrificed to idols," and they would watch them skip over it, and they would just get vegetables. And then what the Romans would do is they take the blood and they drip it on the vegetables. Mm-hmm. And when the when they would see people that were like, "I won't eat any of that," they would say that was a Christian. Mm-hmm. Okay, so does that make sense? So here's our first two chapters, seven and eight. Marrying meat. Now you say it. Marrying meat. Does that make sense? Pretty rough. Mm -hmm. Now, again, the whole idea of it is read them on your own. Next one is giving. He talks about, remember, he's going to make a collection for the church that's in Judea that's suffering from the famine right now when he's making a collection. So marrying meat, giving. So try that. Marrying meat, giving. Okay, and that's seven, eight, and nine. Does that make sense? So, 7, 8, and 9. Now, in 10, we have one more chapter in regards to the issue of idols. So, number 10 is idols. And what he'll say is, I want you to know, though we know idols are nothing, it really is. There is a demonic faction there, and you need to recognize that. It isn't just a a chunk of wood. There is a demonic thing going on here, and I want you to recognize. So our first four chapters are marrying meat, giving idols. Try that. Okay, and that's seven, eight, nine, ten. 
You with me so far? Seven, eight, nine, and ten. Now, eleven. Men and women at the table. This is where he talks about the fact that this love feast you guys are supposed to have, this communion time, people were getting drunk. People were eating until they barfed. And hungry people didn't eat anything. Now, doesn't that sound like a carnal church? It is a rebuke. So, here's your first hand. Marrying meets giving idols men and women at the table. You try that. Marrying meets giving idols men and women at the table. Try it again. Marrying meets giving idols men and women at the table. Does that make sense? You're one hand down. We're down to our last hand. Now we have chapter 12, spiritual gifts. And I'll develop, we have teaching on all of this, so I want to be kind to let you know that, so we can develop all of that stuff. But he addresses the issue, and by the way, he does make clear, in regards to that, God gives every spiritual gift, hear me on this, to to bless other people, not you. He goes, tongues is the one that will bless you. But he goes, and we'll talk about that in chapter 14, but he says, when God gives you gifts, the Spirit gives you those gifts to bless other people, not to validate you. So listen, chapters 12, 13, and 14, hear me on this, chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts, chapter 14 is about how to practice it at church, we'll say church practices. What's chapter 13? What's 1 Corinthians 13? Don't you find it interesting he put that in there? It isn't like he put it next to chapter 7 about marriage. He says, hear me on this. In both cases where spiritual gifts are mentioned, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, there are two things that are fundamental. One is you have to recognize you're a part of the body. You're not a maverick in this. The second is you have to be driven by love. So chapters 12, 13, and 14 are this. Spiritual Spiritual gifts love church practices. Does that make sense? Now, listen to these church practices. For instance, tongues. In a church setting, no more than three, one at a time, and if there's no interpretation, sit down and shut up. That's what Paul's saying. Find a church that does that. It does not say someone with the gift of interpretation. There's a difference. To me, the point is, he goes, if a guy stands up and he starts to speak in a tongue and there is no interpretation, who's the only person being blessed in the room? Okay. God speaking, check me out, I am speaking in a tongue. It's interesting because what's clear is this carnal spirit, this carnal charismatic church has a big issue with tongues. And he goes, look at the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. He goes, don't you dare tell me you were so overwhelmed you couldn't control yourself. Yes, you can he goes, but hear me on this. He goes, if a guy stands up and he begins to speak, and a guy in the, and this has happened in a several occasions with us, where a guy's like, oh, that's my native tongue. And he goes, let me tell you what that man has just said. I'm from Greece, and this is what this man said. Now who's blessed in the room? Everybody's blessed. Right? Now, I mean, by the way, there had been a time where a guy did and I went, that's actually ancient Greek, and I knew the guy didn't know any. I'm like, I can't have to do this. Let me tell you what this guy is saying. 
everyone was like, dang, that was awesome. But here's the crazy thing. If speaking in a tongue is from man to God, by the way, it's from man to God. If the only time a person speaking in tongues is in front of other people, I'm a little concerned about that. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what in the world he's saying anyways. But in, in the end, it's one at a time because this is it. God wants it done decently and in order. He wants the church service to be a place that people are blessed. Mm-hmm. How's that for fun? Because in prophets, let them speak one at a time and if a guy is going on and another guy gets a word, then let the first guy sit down and shut up and let this guy, in other words, he's probably outrun his anointing at this point and the next guy needs to jump in. Well, Paul says, he goes, because it should be done decently and in order. He goes, because the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. He goes, but let it be done for the edification of the body, not for the exaltation of your souls. Mm. So spiritual gifts love church practices. Try that. Spiritual gifts love church practices. Okay, now you're only two away. Marrying me, giving idols, men and women at the table. You tell me. Marrying me, giving idols, men and women. Spiritual gifts love church practices. You with me so far? Okay. Chapter 15. Are you nuts? You actually have people teaching there's no resurrection? Chapter 15 is about resurrection. He goes, how in the world can you be a Christian and not believe in a resurrection? He says, if that's you, you're the most pitiful person on the planet. Because there are people that are actually teaching there's no afterlife. Now, by the way, that was what the Sadducees already believed. And the problem is when Sadducees got saved, they tried to stay Christian Sadducees. Let me say it this way. It's like a stripper got saved and now they're trying to be a Christian stripper. You go, that doesn't work. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. But when a guy doesn't believe in an afterlife and then he gets saved and now it's just like Jesus is like world karma... It's amazing when people are like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, it's your deal. No, it's not. The Pharisees did the same thing. They got saved and they started a group called the Circumcision and said, you're not saved unless you're circumcised. They just dragged them, their old self over. And listen, if you let Jesus bury everything and if he can't reconcile it and resurrect it, then let it stay buried. There's the hard part because some of that stuff we really like. Does that make sense? So chapter 15, Resurrection. He goes, Jesus is resurrected. You nutcases. I mean, he doesn't say it like that, but you can read it. You get that tone. And finally, chapter 16, giving and goodbye. Okay, I want to just tell you, I am showing up. And and I'm planning on coming and helping make that collection. By the way, do you remember the guy who actually had Paul persecuted that got beat up? Do you remember his name? That was really, really awesome. High five. High five. Hey, could you do me a favor really quick and read the first verse of 1 Corinthians? Paul, um, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and stops the needs of our brother. Could you imagine? The same guy that tried to get Paul arrested and so forth by this point is actually saved and serving with Paul. How cool is that? So that's a fun thought. So here we go. You ready? Spiritual gifts. So let's start with this. Marrying me, giving idols, men and women at the table. Marrying me, giving idols, men and women at the table. 
men and women at the table. Spiritual gifts, love church practices, resurrection giving and goodbye. Spiritual gifts, love and church practices, resurrection giving and goodbye.